0: We are in the conclusion of this series, Wonderful Counselor. It's been a great series, and I can say that because I haven't preached any of them so far. And uh, (laughs) I really, really enjoyed the process and uh, enjoyed the, the pieces of this series. Wonderful Counselor has been a series where we listen to Jesus as the Wonderful Counselor, and Wonderful Counselors are really good at asking those great questions that get us to think through what's really going on in our own lives. And we're looking at four of those. And so if you missed some, you can catch up online. Today, we want to kind of share with you why we called it Wonderful Counselor because there's actually a phrase in the prophecy from Isaiah. Isaiah 9:6 tells us that for to us a child is born. We often kind of refer to this passage coming up on Christmas, because it foretells the birth of Christ, for, us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Sometimes uh, some wonder if that's actually two things. He will be called Wonderful, comma, Counselor, comma but we're looking at how he is he's an incredible counselor and he's using these questions that really help us now that's where we're zeroing in but i just have to kind of look at those other phrases too because when you combine these two ideas that there's a child that's going to be born who is going to be called wonderful counselor we don't want to overlook the fact that the really shocking thing for the Jewish ears to hear is there's just, child is going to be born in the future, and this is centuries before Jesus comes, this is written, and he will be called Mighty God. And for a Jewish mind, that's that's mind-blowing. What? Why, why would there be a person that's called Mighty God? He'll be called Everlasting Father. He'll be called Prince of Peace. And so, there's this anticipation building through the centuries in the nation of God that this coming Messiah is going to be wow, he's going to be something. We're looking at just a piece of that. We're looking at how he is just amazing at reading our hearts, amazing at helping us to understand what's going on, amazing at helping us take steps toward him. So, tonight's topic is based on a question like all of them are based on a question. The question is, why do you doubt? Why do you doubt? Now, that question, interestingly, shows up in multiple places in the New Testament in a little bit different phrases, and the main place it shows up is going to, I'm going to show you the verse, but we're not going to actually use that as our main text for tonight. We're going to use another section that answers the question a little bit for us as we wrestle with our doubts, but in Matthew is where it's closest in, in phraseology, where We read this, immediately, in Matthew 14, 31. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? Can you place that scene? This is Peter, that Jesus is saying to Peter, you of little faith. Of course, if you've really placed the scene, you go, really? Little faith? Here's the scene. They're in the the lake. There's a storm. It's in the middle of the night. They're fearful. And then they see something out in the water. It's kind of ghostly. It's like coming their direction. And then he calms them down. It's Jesus. And Peter says, if that's you, Lord, call me to come out there too. I just, it's dark. But you can picture Jesus. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Peter, come on out. And I don't know if your imagination does what my imagination does. I picture what that's like. Now, I have a hard time navigating from solid ground to escalator, and from escalator to solid ground. Uh, Practice has made it better, right? Can can you imagine navigating from boat to ocean with waves? This is Peter now. Okay. (laughs) Right? I mean, that's how I picture it. Or do you picture it like you're, he's up to here and he just kind of goes level while all the waves are going around him. I don't know how you picture it. Whatever it is, it's pretty awesome. Where Peter is walking on the water because Jesus is walking on the water. It's like nobody else thought of this. He says, if that's you, Lord, tell me to come out there too. I'm thinking he's head and shoulders above all the other apostles. He's way beyond me. And Jesus says, you of little faith. It's like little That's incredible. And then he says, why did you doubt? Well, here's what's happened. He walks on the water. He's doing really well for a few steps. And then something happens, and I'm not going to tell you what it is. (laughs) If you flip your outline over to the other side, there's a whole study that we're skipping. It's for you to do. Because we're going to go to another passage and deal with this question. Why did you doubt? But I do want to ask the question, do you think Jesus had on his face disappointment when he said to Peter, why do you doubt? Okay, let me slow this down. He didn't actually say, why do you doubt? He said, why did you doubt? Because he's not doubting now, right? Well, read it. You'll discover I'm right. And then... He's not doubting now, so here's how I picture it, maybe you'll picture it this way too, where Peter fails, he starts to sink, he says a really effective, short prayer, I said I wasn't gonna tell you this, a really effective, short prayer, he says, Lord, save me, that's a good one, memorize that one, okay? It's a really good prayer, Lord, save me, you should be able to get that one down in about 10 minutes. Lord, save me, and immediately, he looks to the Lord again, and Jesus lifts him up. He, he says, "You have little faith. Why do? Oh, oh, why did you doubt? Now the doubting's over. Why did you doubt? Now, I don't know how you're picturing Jesus' face. Sort of depends on your background, I think. Do you picture it like you know some of the movies? Why did you doubt? It's like <laughs> that's a lousy movie. Come on, give him some emotion." Uh, or do you picture stern? Why did you doubt? I mean, that may reflect more on your view of God than on really what Jesus is saying. I picture him, Jesus like cracking up, smiling and lifting him up and says, wow, <laughs> you did so great. Why did you doubt? It's like, okay. And we move on. So anyway, Get into that study uh, on your own as we continue forward. That's one of the pieces in the scripture where the question is asked. Here's another piece out of Luke 24. We're not going here either, but you'll see it. Why are you frightened, he asked? Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Now, this is present tense. It's not past tense. Why are your hearts filled with doubts? Now, this is um, Luke's version of what we are going to get into in the Gospel of John today. This is Luke's version of what the apostles are feeling that first night when Jesus shows up after the resurrection and none of them knew what had happened. They're freaking out. They're hiding in a room. The doors are locked. Their leader was just killed. They're thinking they're going to be killed too. And Jesus appears and he says, why are your hearts filled with doubt? Okay, it's a great question. Get them thinking. By the way, It was a great question to Peter, too, and that I didn't answer this. He wanted Peter to learn something. What did he want him to learn? All right, so there's your assignment. Now, moving on. We want to get into our text tonight, but before we do, I want just a simple agree or disagree question to get you thinking. Agree or disagree? Sometimes truth sounds suspicious. Sometimes truth sounds suspicious. How many of you agree? All right. Here's a story, makes us kinda go, yeah, yeah. In 1993, FBI agents conducted a raid of Southwood Psychiatric Hospital in San Diego, which was under investigation for medical insurance fraud. After hours of reviewing medical records, the agents had worked up an appetite. The agent in charge of the investigation called a nearby pizza parlor to order a quick dinner for his colleagues. According to Snopes.com, a site dedicated to determining whether internet stories are true or merely unsubstantiated urban legends, the following telephone conversation actually took place, according to Snopes. Here we go. Agent. Hello. I would like to order 19 large pizzas and 67 cans of soda. The pizza man. And where would you like them delivered? The agent. We're over at the psychiatric hospital. Pizza man. The, The psychiatric hospital. The agent. That's right. I'm an FBI agent. The pizza man. You, you're an FBI agent? The agent. That's correct. Uh, just about everybody here is. Pizza man. And, and you're at the psychiatric hospital. That's correct. And make sure you don't go through the front doors. We have them locked. You will have to go around in the back to the service entrance to deliver the pizzas. The pizza man says, and you say you're all FBI agents? <laughs> agent, that's right. How soon can you have them here? Pizza Man says, and everyone at the psychiatric everyone at the psychiatric hospital is an FBI agent? This guy's stuck on the same question. Anyway. Agent says, that's right. We've been here all day, we're starving. The agent says, I have uh, how 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 are you going to pay for all of this? The agent says, I have my checkbook right here. The pizza man says, and you're all FBI agents. And the agent says, that's right. Everyone here is an FBI agent. Can you remember to bring the pizzas and sodas to the service entrance in the rear? We have the front doors locked. Pizza man says, I don't think so. Click. (laughs) Do you blame him? The truth sounded so suspicious that there was no way he was going to risk his his nineteen pizzas and going out there. Is he? he didn't. He, is this either a prank or he was going to be taken? And he, we all have this kind of skepticism built inside of us. Okay. It was the same way that Sunday that Jesus was resurrected. News began to go flying all over, mouth to mouth, mouth to ear. All over. everybody's starting to talk. Did you hear? Did you hear? The tomb is empty. Jesus is risen, okay? This is all flying around before any of the apostles have seen him. And so, you're you're a little bit like the pizza man hearing this. It's like, Jesus is risen? Yeah. (laughs) Right. I mean, you normally be suspicious of the rumors because it's, first of all, how many of you have seen anybody risen from the dead? I mean, if you're dead, dead, you're dead, not risen. And, and now, just because you want him to be alive? I mean, this is rumor circulating. So the whole skepticism thing is going to be rampant through our discussion tonight. Now, this is really important. So our focus reads this way. What would it take to remove the doubt and instill a firm conviction? Because through the process of what we're looking at, this is what takes place with all the apostles the suspicion, their skepticism, their doubt is removed. And there's one whole doubt, his is removed last. What would it take to remove the doubt and instill firm conviction? All right, in an audience like ours, I don't know whether you believe in the literal resurrection of Jesus, I do. But let me just tell you, there came a point in my life After a four-year degree at a college in religious studies studying the New Testament, okay, heavily studying the New Testament, I had already entered into ministry. In my first few months of ministry, I don't know whether it was spiritual battle or what, a little doubt wheedled down into me. And as it wheedled down into me, it was like this this shuddered, Dark thought just kind of settled over me. It was reminiscent of the times before I had accepted the Lord as my Savior when I would think about eternity and be horrified, fearful. What's going to happen when I die? Now this doubt is just wheedling down into me, and I'm supposed to be the one who's ministering to the young people and leading into the Lord, and I have this question that gets down inside of me, and it's like, what if? What if everything that I've based my whole life on, what if everything that I believe is is only what I believe because I grew up in a Christian home and I was taught this and I know no better. What if it's really not true? Now, with those kinds of doubts and being a pastor, you'd assume that I'd do what i always immediately do, go to the Lord in prayer. That is not what I did, okay? I called my dad. Which, my dad was my go to person with every hard question about life. Every hard question about the Bible. You need to understand, at that point in time, he was a Bible college professor. So I had a great dad to go to with these kind of questions. Can you imagine being on the other end of the line, a dad of a son who's in the ministry who's asking, Dad, how do I know this is true? (laughs) What do you say? I was so grateful for what he said, and it set me on a path that really helped me for the rest of my life. He said, son, you don't have to worry about your doubts. You don't have to worry about your skepticism. Just drill down to the root of that doubt. Drill down to the root of that skepticism. Keep drilling down, because you do not have to worry about truth. Study and discover the truth. I said, so, and then he gave me some suggestions. You know what I'd do? I would study the hardest thing and drill down to that because once you've got that piece figured out, the rest of it will fall in place. He says, what do you mean? He says, go to all of your resources. You've got them. You know them. Study them on whether Jesus really existed, whether he was really crucified, and whether he was really raised from the dead. Okay? I'm going back to my places. I'm going to take a look. I'm going to study that. So that's what I did. And the doubts just started to melt away. And the darkness just melted away. Now, I'm going to give you a short version of that study. I already had the equipment to look into it deeply. What I looked into first is, I couldn't look into, I believe this because the Bible says this. That wouldn't work. I had to go deeper than that. Okay? You need to understand, the apostles did too. The apostles who weren't believing in the resurrection of Jesus after his crucifixion, they weren't believing the story of the resurrection because they believe the Bible. No, they had to drill down what really happened. And so the same way with me, it was like, okay. And as I looked, I began to study the secular writers about Jesus. Yep, Jesus really existed. Secular writers who did not believe he was the Son of God, secular writers who did not believe that his claims to be the Son of God, wrote about him, wrote about him crucified, wrote about him in this criminal execution, and Pontius Pilate wrote about the events, the same events that I'm reading about in the Gospels, that he really existed in history. And then I began to see okay, what other evidences are, apart from the Gospels, what other evidence is there that he's really real? And you discover in history, Christianity exploded Boom. with a movement that was unstoppable because its leaders were convinced kill us, that's fine. Our Our follower, I mean, we're following a guy who raised from the dead, and we believe in him, and we will be raised from the dead as well. Kill us if you want to. And it exploded into growth immediately after the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, I also understood the whole thing about myths. And how long it takes for myths to develop and you have to get away from the actual event in history that the myth is tied to long enough, hundreds of years, so there's not any living person that can dispute your version of the changed data for a myth to even gain any ground. This is not myth. This stuff was propagated, boom, right after the resurrection of Jesus, right in the heart of enemy territory. All these people who did not want this to be true So then you start reading the Gospels and every detail and every piece starts to just be loudly fitting together with history making sense and it just starts to build and build and build. So that whole little piece about walking on water that seems so hard for anybody to believe, it's like once you believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be and could rise from the dead, that walking on water stuff's easy, right? (laughs) And you actually have more evidence for the hardest miracle than you do for the, other miracles that are, are maybe, should be easier to believe, like the feeding of the 5,000. So the, Raising the dead is the easier one to prove with the evidence. So we're looking at that together tonight. This is really important stuff, because I don't know what kind of doubts you experience. That's one kind of doubt, what I described. I still have other kinds of doubts that creep in. Doubts like, I don't know if God's gonna do this one for me. I don't know. I pray this big prayer, and it's been a while since I've seen a miracle like this. I don't know if he's, it's almost like, I don't know whether he loves me that much to do this for me. That's a doubt. And we have these different levels of doubt that takes place that kind of weakens our faith and our resolve and our prayer resolve and our strength. So wherever you're at in your skepticism, don't feel beat up. Okay? Okay. Your skepticism, good questions are great because as you get down to the bottom of those questions, your faith is going to be stronger, not weaker. So I'm hoping that this session together will encourage your faith and maybe get those who are honest skeptics to look into it more deeply to see where to go from here. You ready to begin? Point number one, locked doors didn't keep Jesus out. Locked doors didn't keep Jesus out. I'm going to have you open your Bibles in a moment. If you want to open them now, we're going to be in John chapter 20. I'm going to put a couple of the verses on the screen first before we start looking into the text a little bit more deeply. In John 20, verse 19, we read this. On the evening of the first day of the week, this is that Sunday, the Sunday that Jesus rose from the dead. That night, he rose in the morning, that night when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. I want you to picture the scene. It's night, there's no electricity. You're in a locked room. Uh, I imagine the shutters being shut. Do they have shutters? I don't know. I imagine it anyway. Shutters are shut because they're, they're afraid. And, and, and so there's candlelight or lamps that are lit, and it's dim, and the doors are locked. Why? Because the leader was killed. We're in jeopardy. We're next. And what are we going to do now? And they're meeting together. And then as they're in that fearful place, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Boo! <laughs> Actually, he just as well have said boo because he says, Peace be with you but to them it sounded like boom, because they're in a locked room, and he wasn't there, and suddenly boom, he's there. Oh, oh, and it's a good thing he said peace be with you, because my heart is totally not at peace. (laughs) It's like the most ironic statement ever, peace. (laughs) Be with you, right? So these kind of details we, we read, and these are eyewitnesses who are describing these details, and we're trying to figure out what. Okay, so this is really cool stuff, but is it just story? There's something different about Jesus after the resurrection. He does stuff like this which he didn't do before. The room is locked, he's not there, boom, and then he's there. This happens repeatedly after the resurrection. So it makes me have this question. So let me put the question on the screen. I don't know if you have these kinds of questions. If after the resurrection, Jesus can enter a room with the doors still locked, why was the stone removed from the tomb he was in? Are you getting my question? If he can get into a room that's totally locked, why bother with the stone? He can just get out. Okay, so the answer to that question is, the stone was removed for a purpose other than, okay, Jesus, you can come out now, right? (laughs) Because he can get out, just like he got in to the locked room. The stone was not moved to let Jesus out. The stone was moved so that we could peek in. It's evidence, and it's evidence for skeptics, and it's evidence for believers. It was evidence for the enemies who did not want Jesus to be raised from the dead. In fact, these enemies, are rather interestingly, they heard when Jesus said, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. The leaders are going to crucify me. On the third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. And they're going, ooh, 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 we've got to make sure that doesn't happen. Because they're, they're, they're hearing Jesus say, they're going to reject me, they're going to crucify me, and they're in the middle of making plans to crucify him. Yep, yep, yep. The, the apostles, on the other hand, they're thinking, he can't be crucified, he's the Messiah. And since he can't be crucified, and he's the Messiah who's going to reign forever, since he can't be crucified, I don't get this parable. That's how they're hearing it, and it just kind of gets cataloged as upper shelf, and they don't even think about it anymore. And so then Jesus goes through the actual events which he predicted, and who remembers it who doesn't remember it? The enemies remember it, and the believers don't, which is really interesting, but that's frame of mind. The enemies are keying in because they're busy trying to get him killed, and here's what they do. Okay, he says he's going to be rise on the third day. We've got to make sure nothing happens on that third day. We're going to put a great big stone in front of the tomb. We're going to make sure we have an official seal over this tombstone. We're going to put this wax seal on and imprint it so that if this tombstone is moved, it will break. The seal will be broken. We will know if they've been tampering. And we're going to hire all these soldiers to make sure that nothing happens. And then something happens. And the soldiers can't even explain it because they're too busy fainting. Seriously, that's what the gospel narratives describe. The angel opens the tomb. <laughs> I wish I could do the special effects, but my imagination is too good, and I can't quite pull it off. And, and so the tombstone is opened. The soldiers freak out because the angels didn't pull out their do not fear, behold card card which they always say to people that are on the right team, but to the wrong team, it's like, Wah. and they go, boom, 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 right? So they're all fainted down. As soon as they come to, it's like, Jesus is gone. Whoa, we're going to be killed, right? But they decide to go to the officials and say, hey, something really weird happened. They explain it all, and the officials, <sighs> what's really weird is the officials say, okay, here's what you've got to do you've got to spread this rumor and we're going to pay you to do it. The enemies of Jesus believed in the resurrection more than the followers of Jesus believed in the resurrection immediately afterwards. It's like, we've got to stop this rumor. And the believers are going, what is happening? We don't get it. Okay? Really interesting stuff. Point number two, Jesus invites investigation. That's why the tomb is opened and there's more invitations going on than that. So here we read in John twenty twenty. I picked the NLT version. I'll put it on the screen for that reason. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. In other translations, it just says he showed them his hands and his side. We assume the wounds based on what Thomas is going to say later in the passage, okay? And based on what Jesus says later in the passage, we assume, here's why he's showing the hands. Hello, it's me, guys. You see the wounds here, wounds here. Some would say wounds here, which I I think is probably more accurate. Wounds here, and wounds in the ankles, and wounds in the side. The Romans were experts at crucifixions. They were very, very good at making sure people died. An excruciating death. We get the word excruciating from crucify. Excruciating, okay? They were experts at this. They had to rush the job because it was a holy day. So they broke the legs of the two thieves to make sure they suffocated on the cross. They went to break Jesus' legs, but he was already dead. To make sure he was dead, they thrust a spear into his side, and John, who was there, watched, and water and blood separated. Water and blood flowed out. I think he writes it for theological reasons, but the doctors have a different idea. I won't get into that. He's dead, dead, dead. So I have this really weird question. He's buried in a tomb. He's dead from Friday night Saturday all day, Sunday morning. I'm not really expert on the smell of death and decay and what takes place in organs and cells and systems in that short of a period. But dead, dead is dead, dead. (laughs) And by Sunday morning, if you're dead, to be resurrected, it's gonna take an act of God a creative miracle that totally restores life at a cellular level to bring somebody back to life, right? So here's my question. If that's true, why didn't God, through this miraculous, just like he's able to create man out of dirt or the world out of nothing, why couldn't he just recreate fresh skin, totally healed? fresh skin and flesh, totally healed on the side and the hands and the feet, why still these, I assume, scars or partially healing wounds, why not heal those completely? And I, I ask this question because I read other passages about miracles, like when Paul sees Jesus resurrected later on in the story, it's such a glorious light, it blinds him instantly. And after the miracle Later, when a guy is told, go pray for Paul, and he prays for Paul, he, his sight is restored. It says, things like scales fall from his eyes. Now, I can't prove this either, but I think what that is, is a miracle is taking place that recreating the eye tissue in a miracle, and instantaneously that recreation pops out the dead tissue, the cornea that's destroyed, pops off, and it looks like scales just pops to the ground, and he's got fresh eyes, and he can see Totally healed. So, why didn't God totally heal the hands and the feet and the side for Jesus? Interesting, interesting questions. Let's take a look at the next verse. Again, he said, boo. I crack up because, I mean, the the operative word here is not peace be with you, because he says this three times in this passage. The operative word here is again. It's like these guys are still freaked out. He's standing right before them. He has to say it again. Peace be with you. Here, see my hands? I'm inviting you to check it out. Take a look. Investigate. That's the direction that peace will be found if you're struggling with doubt. All right, so here's the questions that I gave you in a a second deal. Why the scars at all? So here's some more questions. Do the scars serve as additional evidence to help with their doubts? I think certainly. Do the scars now serve as badges of honor? I don't know if you've considered that. And here's a really weird question that kind of blows our thinking a little bit. Are there scars in heaven? If there's scars on the resurrected body of Jesus, are there still scars on the resurrected body of Jesus in heaven? And if so, are these badges of honor for all to gaze at and be encouraged by forever? All right, so mm, some more ideas here on the next slide. Scars are stories. Now, as a kid, maybe you too. Want to see mine? You know, you tell the story, because for a boy, depending on where the scar is, it's cool, I have a cool story to tell with a scar. Jesus has a really cool story to tell with the scar. And here is another thought. God redeems all the stories of the redeemed. Each one of us have lived enough life that we are scarred, literally. Some of us have marks we don't really want to show or tell the story. Some of us have invisible marks that we either know about or don't know about. Scars that we have. Isn't this a hopeful thought? That Jesus now, who's come through the wounds, the wounds of the fallen world, who's come through the wounds, is now showing off. This victory. We too will show off our victory, which is really God's victory, when he redeems all of our wounds. I don't think we will be embarrassed by our story because it brings glory to God as he has redeemed us. Now, if you're embarrassed by an external scar, don't don't get me wrong. I think, I wanted this to be gone when I got to heaven. It probably will be, okay? (laughs) All right? But if, if he decides to keep it to tell a wonderful story, you won't be embarrassed. It'll be a badge of honor to tell the greatness and the goodness of God. So what's your story? What's your wound? Wouldn't you also like your wounds to be healed? And wouldn't you like your story to be redeemed? Let's go to point number three. Point number three, Jesus personally unlocks your heart. Now, where we're going is we're going to take a look at Thomas, and I think that we've given him a really bad label because we call him what? Doubting All right, let's get this straight. Every single apostle was a <laughs> doubting apostle after the resurrection of Jesus. Nobody believed that he was the, cru- he was the Messiah. As soon as he's crucified, it's like, Wait, he can't be crucified? You mean we followed a lie? I mean, what's going on here? They're they're all struggling. They're all doubting until their doubts are erased by the answers. Jesus takes all of this very personally with the power ranks of his followers. I'm really, really glad for that because if he didn't take this really personally with the power ranks of his followers, I would have struggled more with the wait a minute, really? Uh, it's like, they just believed it? No, because of their struggle and because of their skepticism, it really helps me answer my own struggle and my own skepticism. And Jesus addresses it very personally. We're gonna be in John chapter 20, uh, verses 24 to 28. Uh, grab a Bible in front of you in the chair. Turn to page 757 or grab your own Bible or your own phone and find John chapter 20. We're gonna start at verse 24. Verse 24 where Jesus personally unlocks Thomas's heart. Now, so far we've been on the first Sunday. We're now jumping forward in this section. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, which means twin. We also get the word ditto from Didymus. So, ideas if you have twins? Okay. Okay. <laughs> Now, now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he, he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And rather than degrade Thomas to the status of doubting Thomas, let's just wait a minute. Everybody else was doubting, too, until they saw Jesus. And Thomas hasn't seen yet. He's just, I I treasure the skepticism here because it validates the questions of so many skeptics. And now let's take a look and see through his eyes and what takes place here. It helps us along. Jesus deals with our skepticism. Maybe not by showing up personally, but as you seek him, he will deal with your skepticism personally as well. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them this time. Though the doors were locked, again, they're still scared. Jesus came and stood among them and said, I want to say boo, but peace be with you again. Then he said to Thomas, How did you know to say this? He wasn't present in the room when Thomas says, Unless I. But he turns to Thomas and very personally addresses Thomas right where he declared his skepticism. He said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Then verse 28, before I read it, is the climactic statement of the entire Gospel of John. And it's a shocker if you understand what's going on here. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. You need to understand, Thomas is Jewish. Jews have been trained for thousands of years that God is spirit, God is not somebody you can look at and live, Moses could look at the backside of the glory of God and live, but if you looked at the glory of God, you would die, you are not allowed to make any images or idols because God is not an image for you to look at. And so Jews are trained that God is is spirit and, and there's only one God, and they say this every day, God is one. And now Thomas has come to the conclusion as he's looking at Jesus in bodily form like a man showing scars, he says, my Lord and my God. And that is his response. He's declaring what is a statement of faith that Paul has declared that Jesus is the image of the invisible God before us, that he himself is God in the flesh. And Thomas comes to this conclusion. I have a question. Do you think, Thomas, when Jesus said, put your hand in my hand, put your hand in my side, do you think that he goes, well, well, move your robe? I'm just going to make sure. No. Now when he's face to face with Jesus and he is dealing with him personally and he's saying the precise words which he wasn't in his company to hear except by the Spirit of God, He just drops and worships and declares his faith. I love that. Jesus didn't push Thomas because he failed in his doubting off. And he won't push you off either. So I don't know what doubts you have. I don't know what skepticisms you have. I don't know where you're struggling in your faith. Jesus is not pushing you off. He will work with you personally. He will, he will ask you to keep seeking, keep knocking, keep asking. You will find. Thomas wanted to believe, but he wants to believe the truth. If it's not truth, I'm not believing it. Once you show me the facts, I will believe it. There's a lot of doubting today that isn't like that. There's a lot of doubting today that they don't want to even look at facts because if it's true, I have to change everything. And there's a lot of fear with people's doubts. <laughs> Let me describe faith. I want to describe it this way. On the screen. Faith is trust. Trust is walking to the edge of all the light that you have so far. And taking one more step in the same direction that all the evidence is pointing. And every one of us are at a different place with the level of evidence that we have accumulated. But the evidence is pointing all of us toward Jesus and trust is taking one more step in the direction that the evidence is pointing. The next slide reads this way. What's your next step? In the direction that all the evidence you have so far is pointing you, and are you afraid to take that step? And now Jesus will say to you, why do you doubt? You need to answer that question. Why am I afraid to take that step? Is it honest, or is it not honest? Are you truly a truth seeker or are you just not wanting to change? Take the step that's just beyond the level of what you have so far that's in the same direction of the trust that you have so far. Why do you doubt when the evidence is pointing you to take that step? What's your next step? Maybe for some of you it's just, I'm going to read the rest of the Gospel of John. Maybe it's, I'm going to read that story about... Peter, I want to I investigate down and see if this is really true. Maybe it's something different. What is the Spirit of God asking of you? Would you pair with me? Lord God, thank you for your gentle, gracious care. You are a wonderful counselor you ask us an important question. Each one of us wrestle with different levels of weakness of faith, we could call it, or doubt, where we're not quite following you as much as you deserve to be followed because our trust level has not risen to the level of the evidence that we have. Lord, we want to step towards you. Lord, my Lord, and my God. Thank you for loving me. In Jesus' name, amen.